Welcome to the Coda Kings podcast. You can support us by donating to our Patreon, which is in the link below. I've also written a new book on mindfulness and mental health. It's called Life Hacks for Mindful Living. That can also be found in the description of this podcast. Our special guest today is Dr. Susie Green. She's a clinical and coaching psychologist and the founder of the Positivity Institute, which is an organization that's dedicated to the research and application of positive psychology for life, school, and work. Susie is a leader in the fields of coaching psychology and positive psychology, having conducted a world-first study on evidence-based coaching as an applied positive psychology. Susie was a recipient of the International Positive Psychology Fellowship Award and has published in the Journal of Positive Psychology. Susie holds academic positions in the Institute for Positive Psychology and Education, Australian Catholic University, the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, University of Melbourne and the Black Dog Institute. Susie is also an affiliate of the Institution of Wellbeing, Cambridge University. She was also the stress-less expert for the Australian Women's Health magazine for eight years and maintains a strong media presence and regularly appears on television, radio and in print. Susie Green is an amazing woman and she's such a down-to-earth person and I really want you to go check out her stuff at thepositivityinstitute.com.au and get behind all her work because she's changing lives. I'm very excited about this interview we get into a lot of great things about mental health mental illness stress comparison with other people a bit of q a at the end i know you're going to enjoy it without further ado here is our interview with dr susie green well I'm joined today by the beautiful, the intelligent, the influential, but the very, very kind-hearted and um, such a, a giving person. Her name's Dr. Susie Green. And now, she's uh, one of the leading voices in positive psychology, and it's a pleasure to, to be with her today. How are you going, Susie? I'm really well, Matt. Thank you so much for coming in, and I'm really excited to speak with you today. Just uh, to start off with, do you want to just like, give us a recap about your background? Like, yeah. How did you even... When did you decide that psychology might have been the road for you? Yeah, it's, it's been a pretty incredible journey for me, Matt. So I actually left school when I was 16. So no one okay. in my family had gone to university. Um, there was no expectation of that. And uh, so I got a job. I trained as a secretary in those days, as, which is what a lot of young women did, teaching, nursing, secretarial school. And I was a damn good secretary, let me really? tell you. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I could type 100 words a minute at my peak. Um, <laughs> and I learned a lot of amazing skills that have helped me in my career Um, but I actually met someone it was uh, my partner who became my husband um, Mm. who was studying medicine and actually looking to do psychiatry and he's the one that encouraged me to go to uni so I went back as a mature age student at 24 oh wow in those days you could actually sit an exam and get in these days they have more transition pathway programs Mm. but I guess one of the first things uh, I guess a pearl of of learning for me is um, what's your mindset about who you are or, you know, whether you're, I know in my mind I used to think I'm not a university person because I didn't have any role models, you know. So um, it wasn't until somebody said, you know, you're more than capable of going to uni. And I remember the very first lecture I sat in. So I thought I'd do psychology because my partner was doing psychology 
studying psychiatry and I was intrigued. But I remember mm. sitting in the lecture hall, University of Wollongong, there were about 100 pe- um, students and the lecturer said, I'm just going to you know, let you all know that there'll probably only be about 12 of you that make it through to the very end with doctorates. And I had no reason to believe it would be me, no evidence, but something went click in my head and I knew it was going to be me. Wow. Knew it was going to be me and I've been on the most amazing journey. Um, I could never have predicted and I feel really blessed for the work that I do now. That's, that's amazing because it, it seems like you you were just curious. Like you led by your curiosity exactly. to try it. And I think with a subject like psychology, it's relevant to you, everybody. So whether you mm. actually become a psychologist or not, um, it's about us as human beings. Um, and in fact, some of the uh, courses that are being taught only in a handful of universities at the moment, they're teaching positive psychology as a subject that's open to every faculty. So it doesn't matter if you're doing law or engineering or whatever it is. So, for example, Harvard and Yale, two of the top universities in America, have their most popular subject is positive psychology Mm. because the area is about um, living a good life um, and being your best possible self. So it attracts so many students. Mm. I'd love to see it in more schools, um, and perhaps we'll talk about that today. I think that's the future. I think that's unstoppable. Um, But we've got a bit of a way to go. Yeah, we do. And you're pioneering that, Susie, really. It's funny because when people hear positive psychology, that suggests that there is... What's the difference between psychology, positive? Is there a negative psychology? Is that logic there? Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about well, that? Definitely. So um, <laughs> I ended up uh, doing postgraduate training in clinical psychology. So clinical psychology is really aimed at training uh, you to be to treat clinical disorders. So mm. diagnosable mental disorders like dep- clinical depression, mm. anxiety disorders, phobias, schizophrenia. Um, clinical psych, for example, when I was training in it, and even today I would say is still very much symptom uh, focused and treatment of symptoms and reduction of symptoms whereas Mm. even though I was trained in that model because I moved into coaching psychology and positive psychology even when I was working clinically for me it was about the whole person their their life their values their vision their dreams Mm. and so I guess the symptoms were part of it and and often by looking at some of the other things like their strengths and what really matters can could help um, they you know treat the disorders um, I mean there's definitely still a space for um, clinical treatment I'm not saying there isn't yeah, but I course. think that there's a lot more that we could be doing in a well-being perspective um, since World War two we had to treat disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and anxiety and we've actually come a long way in being able to do that now we're pretty successful overall in that mm. um, But it really wasn't until Professor Martin Seligman in 1998 formally launched positive psychology as a field. And he said, as the president of the American Psychological Association, the time has come for us to start focusing on what's right with people and start focusing on what's good in life. Because, again, uh, psychology was generally not all of it, but very deficit focused up until then. Um, I also heard a fantastic um, academic say many years ago when positive psych started that his hope was that the term positive would be dropped eventually and that just psychology would just be transformed. And we're actually hearing that now in positive education where we're hearing that perhaps positive will be dropped and education will be transformed. But we need we needed the, the bell to swing the other way a bit and I think it's going to come back and find a, a nice place. I love that. That's so amazing. 
Because when, I mean, the traditional sense, I mean, when I talk to young people in the day, it's like, oh, so do you see, you're seeing a therapist, you're seeing a psychologist, like, yeah, I don't like seeing, there's nothing wrong with me, like, it's always about what's wrong with me. That's right. That stigma attached to it. Exactly, and um, Mm. I mean, we still have a way to go, even in our undergrad programs, Um, a lot of undergrad psych programs aren't teaching positive psychology yet, so Mm. if I was a young person, I would say to my therapist, do you know much about positive psych? Hey, that's a good tip there, hey. (laughs) Yeah, because, and also, there are now um, MOOCs, you know, those massive open online courses. Yep, yep. So they're free. You know, people can access them for free, and you can do a course through the University of Pennsylvania, which is one of the best universities, for free on positive psychology. So, I mean, you could direct your therapist to that, or you could do a little bit of, you know. (laughs) Yeah, do it yourself. Do it yourself, MOOCs. MOOCs. Well, you don't have to do a master's; just do a MOOC. Do a MOOC. <laughs> yeah, I'm qualified in MOOC. That's, <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. Um. So one of the things that is a big concern right now is mental illness, and um, but it gets confused. We talked about this mm. off camera a bit with as mental health, and let's talk a little bit about that. Is mental health and mental illness the same? Obviously, it isn't. But no, and I think even the World Health Organization, in their definition of well-being. Um, are quite clear that the absence of mental illness does not equate with mental health. Mm. Um, and again, as a clinical psychologist, we used to assess uh, through an instrument, an instrument such as the DAS, which uh, is the Depression, Anxiety, Stress Scale. Mm. We used to assess levels of depression, anxiety and stress when a client came in. And my job was done technically when my clients scored in the normal range. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have mental health and well-being. It just means that they have lowered levels of symptoms of, of depression and anxiety. That does not mean that they're flourishing. Yeah. You know? So um, as a positive psychologist and as a coaching psychologist, um, my job is to help improve people's well-being, not just treat the symptoms of depression and anxiety, which are really like the common cold in Mm. psychology at the moment it's not just to get them so we're not you know in the normal we actually want to start lifting levels of well-being because Mm. that can then the research tells us potentially prevent further episodes of depression and anxiety Mm. so elevated levels of well-being is a buffer against mental illness Mm, yeah there's there's that saying is taking reducing the bad doesn't necessarily create the health or the good exactly yeah and um so if mental health and illness aren't the same then what for this for the students and people listening what makes up what components make up mental health a a mental like a positive mental health for someone exactly and there are a few different um ways through the science and i i love the science as you know Mm, i mean i love the practice of it but i love the science and the scientists are still debating exactly Mm. um but there's one um i guess uh, core model uh, that's used which professor martin seligman created called the perma model that's Mm. really simple to remember p-e-r-m-a and in fact people are adding an h at the end now Mm. so seligman has identified through the research that um, a flourishing person, and you've probably noticed we use the F word a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Flourish. <laughs> it's not rude, but... Yeah, um... you have dirty minds, whoever's thinking that. So we do use the F word in, in positive sight. So a flourishing individual is somebody, as I said before, low levels of mental illness, but they have high levels of mental health and well-being. So from a PERMA perspective, 
P stands for positive emotions. So on a day-to-day basis, they're experiencing more positivity. So more joy, more gratitude, Mm. more awe and elevation. They savor things. So they really notice the good. They pay more attention to the good. Um, It's not to say they don't have any so-called negative emotions Mm. um, because we all do. And we'd be really, actually, I say, you know, if you're just happy all the time, they'd probably lock you up, Matt. Yeah. It's not normal to be happy all the time. Mm. So, but we are looking for more positive emotions than, um, you know, particularly extreme levels of fear and anxiety um, and sadness. Mm. But even those emotions, like if you think about fear, we, we will never get rid of it and we wouldn't want to. We no, want it to be yeah. there to protect us when we're in situations that could cause harm. So we want a bit of uh, caution, mm-hmm. a bit of prudence, which a lot of people don't even know what prudence means these days, which is basically wise decision-making. Mm. Um, in, in terms of anger, we want to have healthy anger. We want to be assertive. We want to stand up for injustices. We want to be courageous, yeah. but we don't want to be overwhelmed by fear that we never push ourselves out of our comfort zones it's true we want to feel appropriate sadness and we want to feel compassion for people but we don't want to experience clinical depression so Mm. it's really important and a lot of schools that are working in this space doing social and emotional learning are teaching kids this emotional uh, intelligence if you like Mm. So then I'm keep going. E on the PERMA model is engagement. And that means um, being in the flow state. So often athletes call it being in the zone. Mm. Um, musicians, when you're completely one with the instrument, if you like, or the music, yeah, you know I that know feeling. I mean. That surface, it's, I'm in the green room. You know, yeah, again, that's, it. that's it. That's it. Um, and often that's, we find people when they know what their strengths are and they're using their strengths, they report greater levels of engagement. Mm. Um, R is relationships. And um, this is really out of all the factors that have been found to impact on well-being, relationships has the biggest positive effect when they're going well, but it's the biggest negative effect when they're not going well. Mm, and yeah. it's the most common reason that brings people into therapy is problems in relationships. Yeah, well. So it's really the core of everything. Uh, I mean, we can teach you lots of skills, but the relationships is something that really needs a big investment in. M is meaning. So we know that when people have a sense of meaning, not necessarily meaning of life. So some people say to me, I don't need to know the, the big questions, the <laughs> meaning of life. Some people do. You yeah. know? Other people just want meaning in their daily life. So mm. is it my friends? Is it my family? Is it my music, for example? Um, what are my values? What matters most to me? Mm. And then A is accomplishment. Yeah, when well. it comes to school, we've actually found... Um, that accomplishment can actually work against well-being. So there's such a strong str- focus and pressure yep. to achieve that it actively undermines well-being. And that's a big concern and, and something we talk to schools about a lot. So we do know there's about 40 years of research in psychology around goals, the types of goals that we know that are going to create well-being. Mm. Um, so we know goals that uh, relate to relationships, making a difference in the world. You'll get a boost. But overwhelmingly, we know that goals for fame, fortune and success actively undermine well-being. And I don't know if we're having enough conversations in with young people about that. No, There's no. a classic American article, a psychological article called The Dark Side of the American Dream. Mm-hmm. And it pulls together all the research, as I said, to show that, particularly in the US and I would say here in Australia, this 
pursuit and often an individualistic pursuit of fame, fortune and success actively undermines people's well-being but unfortunately it's not until you achieve often you know I've heard people that have worked really really hard and there's been lots of um, you know issues that have been caused with family and through that like they've really focused a lot on their achievement it's not until they've got there that they've stopped and gone oh my goodness like has this really been worth it you know Mm. um so, yeah, so that is a really that achievement piece. So there are things you can do to promote achievement from a well-being perspective in terms of the types of goals, you mo- understanding your motivation. Yeah, motivation is a big one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so we know that if you do something because you have to, if you t- people do not, particularly kids, students, do not like to be told what they have to do. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, when you're at school, there are some things you have to do. I mean, you have to go to school up to a certain age. You have to do maths and English. So we're trying to help teachers help students to see the why. Why would you learn maths? How might maths help you in your school? So the more that students can make meaning out of why they're learning it rather than I have to or I probably should because the research, again, overwhelmingly shows that when you do something because you want to, you've yeah. you decided why you're doing it, not for your mum or dad or your parents or, you know. Um, so there's a lot that we can teach teachers and students there. And just finally, the H is health. So yeah, we've physical known, health? Or, yeah, yeah, physical health. So mm. we've known a long time. Um, for example, we know that people that exercise a minimum of three times a week, 40 minutes, have significantly lower levels of depression that people don't exercise at all. Wow. Yeah. So... Fortunately, those, uh, I guess, physical health and mental health are starting to be brought together a, yeah. a, a lot better than what they were. So, yeah, that's one model, but there's a, there's a lot. You can do a master's, remember? Yeah. Or a MOOCA. Or, or a MOOC. A MOOC. A MOOC. Yeah. A MOOCA. Um, that's amazing. Um, I remember there's a stat. I can't remember. The U.S. Washington um, big survey they do. It's 120 million employees were surveyed over 20 years. And they came up with findings that 87% of the world that they surveyed in 120 countries hated their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, so that means 13% found it engaging. And when you find it not engaging and you're just doing it for the, through the motions, you put the least amount of effort in. Exactly. And, I mean, we spend, they say, a third of our lives at work. I mean, mm. this day and age, it might even be longer. Yeah, and I true. don't know about you. I mentioned I have a son that's 22, about to turn 22. He's still finishing uni, he's working part-time, but he's very quickly working out that he doesn't necessarily think he wants to have a long-term corporate career. Mm. And I think, you know, I've spent many years working um, mainly with men in their 40s and 50s that come along saying, Susie, I've just spent the last 20 years. Mm. Um, I don't want to do this for the next 20 years. So my hope would be that young people, and particularly at school, have an opportunity to talk about what is success, what makes for a successful life, and to understand that my version of success might be different from yours mm. and that we don't necessarily have to take the paths that our parents took or you know, role models, even some that we see on Instagram. We might have a very different version of success, of a successful life. Let's talk a little bit about that because that's, that's funny, echoing exactly what I spoke about today at this school. Because I went to a school today that um, their last year's average grade was 95 for the ATAR. So the expectation from the past students and also just talking to the students, their parents, just you know, being doctors yeah. or being very, very firm on it. And um, what advice would you give a young person who's hearing that going, yeah, I actually want to be 
a photographer or something like that who that's very different to you know a very academic driven course how would you help them discover or encourage them to discover uh, I guess what they want to do rather than comparing themselves to other people yeah oh, there's so much I could say on that but I actually remember down in a, a positive psychology conference at Melbourne Uni a couple of years ago and there was a young man from um, St Peter's College who was again another school that's done a lot on positive education they had Martin Seligman there oh, and cool. as part of their positive education program all the students did the character strengths inventory I don't know if you've come across that um, you can do it for free from the VIA Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, doing that assessment, he really raised some questions for this young man about his career. So he was in year 12. His dad was a lawyer. His grandfather was a lawyer. His great-grandfather was a lawyer. You know, they had family law business. And there was an expectation since he was born that he was going to be run the business. Yeah. But when he got his results, he thought, I don't know if this really, I'm going to really have an opportunity to use my strengths in this role. And um, so he went home to his parents and he shared the results. And um, um, I guess understandably, they were a little upset when he started to say that he wasn't sure if he wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. Um, So he said to them, look, at this stage, rather than go straight into law, I'd really like to have a gap year. I'd really like to have a year just to explore who I am, Mm. the results of this strength survey, and to give it some more thought, rather than, I guess, without questioning it, just going down this path. And I think that was really wise. And thankfully, his parents did support him to have that year off. Now, I haven't heard since then what what decision he's made, but he did say, look, I might still become a lawyer, but at least I'll have had the opportunity to think about other options. So I feel like I'm really making a conscious choice with this, you know, Mm. going forward. So I think the strengths piece is a big piece um, to really think about uh, who you are as a person. And there is a differentiation between character strengths, but also performance strengths. Yeah. Um, So think about the things that energize you. Because as we said, if you're going to be in a job for a third of your life, you want to be doing things that energise you rather than deplete you. Mm. I guess also because some parents, grandparents in particular, had one job for life or one career for life, it is hard, you know, for parents to understand that these days kids might have, what are the stats these days, you know, five or six careers, multiple jobs. At least 10 in between 10 and 30, uh, 20 and 30 years old. Yeah, there's so many options. So, Mm. I mean, you can, and even at uni now, it's very, it's much easier to change subjects. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many different pathways. But I did want to say, because I know your background's life coaching as well, Mm. I would love to see more young people access life coaching services Mm -hmm. because it really, again, if you work with someone that's objective, so somebody that has no buy-in to what they think you should do, Mm. through quite a systematic process, you can help a young person sit with some of the, I guess, ambivalence or some of the, you know, help them look at all the potential pathways so they feel like they've had a good look at it rather than just falling into something or doing something something because they think they should mm. so i think i'd love to see more young people have access to life coaching services some schools are actually starting to implement that mm. mount st michael's in brisbane we've worked with yep. every year 11 year 12 student has a teacher coach i also think though there's an opportunity for external coaches rather than in-house uh, yeah school and coach. i think i think a lot of schools are starting to open up from from my line of work too to third parties and it traditionally was quite shut off toward that because there was like the slippery slope argument of, oh, we'll have to open up to the whole, 
you know, public to be able to bring in. But yeah. they're starting to realise, yeah, well, we're the gatekeepers and we, we can bring in and That's we need right. assistance for it. That's so true. Like, um, man, I'm so enjoying this conversation <laughs> because um, I've got some questions here for some young people. But before we get to that, I was just wondering, um, with, with a lot of students I come across uh, online, they inbox me, I get about... 60 inboxes a day at least wow. from young people and they range from uh, uh, Matt my parents separated and and I, I some have I've had to report back yes. to authorities because yes. it's like I'm suicidal and yes. but what's interesting is being a I guess a social media influencer at the moment I'm sometimes the first person they're telling yeah. their parents don't even know no. and uh, it's very interesting and one of the things that's come I'm coming across a lot is people say I'm depressed Mm. I'm anxious. Mm. I'm stressed. Yes. What would you have to say about that? Because as a clinical psychologist, you know, oh, not necessarily, we have to look into that. That's right. But when you have people maybe, maybe categorize a little bit, maybe students that are just going through a tough time. That's right. What would you say about that? How would you? The lang- As you know, language is so powerful. Very, yeah. And we know, I guess, from a neuroscience perspective that we have association, we have neural associations in our brain. So words are associated with emotions mm. um, and even body posture. So actually one of uh, my colleagues who's a psychiatrist, he talks about, you know, when you have the blues, um, when we use colours as well, like blue, and we're often down. So our whole body posture is down. Yeah. Um, when we're when we're scared, we're often put, we're sort of pulling back. But when we're angry, we're seeing red and we're you know moving forward. And when we're happy, we're up. You know, and there's often a yellow. So you can use sort of a uh, colour um, theory as well, which I, I find really interesting. Mm. But I think you know being mindful, and mindfulness is a big area in yeah. well-being and positive psychology. Being mindful of the language we use because the language can set off associations. Yeah, well, it can set so, and there is a difference um, when people are saying I'm depressed. You know, you really need to question: is it clinical depression? Because there are a set. Uh, criteria of symptoms for a clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a bit of work and I have an honorary position with the Black Dog Institute. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I mean, there, there are other fabulous people like Beyond Blue and other services out there. Um, Black Dog also have a, a website called Bite Back. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't. Actually, it, yeah. It's, it's um, focused on young people, but it's more of a positive psych perspective. So it might mm. be a resource for young people people to go and access. Yeah. I actually consulted to them on that. Um, but we're actually looking at the moment of the language of well-being and how do we, you know, create a, a vocabulary so people start to use the language of well-being. Um, you know, I guess, you know, we certainly know, as I said before, that the language of stress can set off the stress response. So how do we use the language of well-being, of strengths and growth mindset to set off a well-being response as well. Yeah, and understanding, I guess, definitions too is a big part because if a student is around an environment where they're seeing what uh, people sad and they associate that with depression because they're saying that, then that's right. Their brain's just recalling what the word is that they've seen and experienced, and exactly. it might not necessarily be the same to other people hearing it. That's know? right, and that's why these sorts of programs in schools are so important because if you think about it, I mean, all the young people listening today your parents are probably not very skilled in emotional intelligence. <laughs> mm. And that's truthfully speaking because, and, and I, I guess I would encourage young people to have a bit of compassion for mm. their parents because they probably didn't have great 
parental role models either. Yeah. Um, we've never been taught these skills. Some people are naturals. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But the majority of people aren't and they haven't had great role models. So there's a fantastic opportunity for young people these days. And in fact, a lot of the clients I used to get was um, they'd say, I want to be the, the, the person in my family that does something different. There's mm. been a family, um, you know, tra- what's the word? Intergenerational transmission is the technical term, intergenerational transmission of certain behaviours or certain, you know, mindsets. And I want to be the one that turns this around and sets off a new intergenerational transmission. That's a legacy. That's, that's amazing. I've got a bad habit. Like, I know what I'm meant to do with study coming up to the HSC exams, but I've got the habit of getting into social media and in hanging with friends, what would you say about changing that habit or helping her out? Yeah, so, I mean, that sounds like a, a, a bit of a habit. It also sounds like a bit of a procrastination technique. Mm. Um, and I guess we want to differentiate a bad habit from something that might be more of an addictive type nature, if you like, um, where you might need professional help. You know, we all think that we can do it ourselves. Um, and I think that's part of our challenge is to recognise that when it comes to behavioural change, most of us are not great at doing it ourselves. And that's mm. where you need to get professional help um, or work with, um, you know, like a buddy, like have someone, a friend, even a supportive friend. Um, but yeah, in that scenario, it sounds like it is a bit of a procrastination technique. And we have a saying in coaching that procrastination is the thief of time. It's the thief of time. So yeah, it steals right. our time. It ultimately delays the Things. I mean, I'm, I have a fair bit of empathy because I know myself when I was studying, I'd often procrastinate because in a sense, I knew that I worked better under pressure. So if I, you know, if I procrastinated and then I only had a certain amount of time left, then I would really, you know, knuckle down and get it done. But the mm. amount of anxiety that I put myself through <laughs> yes. was crazy, you know. Yeah. So I've had to learn over, we have anxiety on my mother's side of the family. I've had to learn many years to chunk things down yep. and to even put it in my diary. I know that I can probably only, and in fact, the research supports this, about 90-minute sessions and then go and do another activity, you know, play some music or go for a walk. So we also know that if you write it down, like some goals for the, the next 90-minute session, our brain likes to work to targeted goals. Yeah. So if you write it down and also get rid of distractions, um, be very clear about what you want to achieve over the 90 minutes. Again, these are all fairly classic coaching techniques. They are, aren't they? Yeah. So they can it be might... applied to personal training. You could be trained. Yeah. Exactly. So once you learn, and that's why I think, you know, when we're talking about getting a coach, I'm not suggesting that you need a coach for the rest of your life, you know, mm. but maybe even trialing one for you know three months working on one goal you learn skills that you can then use for other goals for the rest of your life as well how long does it take the research um, varies and you often hear uh, what do they say the 90 days or um, you know there are some variations in changing habits and the research is not consistent so some people say there's some research on even a month but others are right up to a year so Mm. but again if you're It depends what it is and with support, so if you have, whether it's a therapist or a coach, you're going to enhance your chances of achieving that goal in a shorter period of time. Mm, That's really important. The last question was around um, comparison of other people. So they make a lot of comparison to friends? They make a lot of comparisons to their friend or with mostly their peers. It's usually the person who is 
achieving the most or a comparison of that's right not just in marks but also with beauty or with yeah. skills and with ambition it's um it's a yes. hard thing because you can't control other people and and often people don't look to themselves to compare themselves to what no, they're used to exactly. it's like and look this is a big area i actually did some media work for nickelodeon mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and i think you remember guy sebastian had that song dare to be square yeah, yeah i remember that, song? that old song yeah yeah and um anyway <laughs> i was asked to look at the research on uh, authenticity like what it tells us and typically in psychology we have studied a lot about inauthenticity so mm. not being authentic so we've had you know psychology we've had a lot of a deficit focus yep. so there's so much research to show that not really being your true self um correlates very highly with mental illness wow now that's really challenging for a young person mm. um, because you really are trying to fit in um, with your peers particularly as an adolescent you are living at home and you know your parents often do have expectations whether they make them explicit or it's just a sort of you know, you sort of pick up that this is what they approve of, this is what they don't. So there is a big piece for parents in this and I'd like Mm. to see parents learn more about this because I don't think parents, you know, want to do this on purpose. But if parents have a set expectation of who their, you know, child should be, it can have a negative impact on on the young person. Um, but I guess the role of the young person is to try and have conversations, and I know that's not always easy with parents. It might mean seeking um, a school counsellor or somebody that can help you practice that conversation yeah, in terms of how playing. do I say to my parent, I know that's what you want or I know that's the path you've taken, but I'm different and that's not the path that I want to take. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, so it's it's a big one, that whole uh, area of being your authentic self. And on the flip side, we've now got more research showing that when you are comfortable in your own skin and you can let your friends and your family know that this is who I am, elevated levels of well-being. Yeah. But in saying that, I know it's not e- I know that's not easy to mm. do. Um and that's where I gain I would probably suggest getting some professional help and I know I've worked with a lot of people over the years to help them have conversations with their family about you know this is who I this is who you might think I am but I'm at a point in my life where I really need to be true to myself mm. and this is who I am and this is what you're going to see going forward. There's a huge amount of bravery that's required for somebody, particularly a young person, mm. to do that. Um, but you probably see in your work, I am seeing a lot of young people being more comfortable to be different. Yeah, that's um, true. The culture know? shift in that way, it celebrating shifting, differences. But it's not always easy. That's not easy, yeah. Um, to finish off, is there a couple of... Um, tips that you'd suggest students to have in their daily life to be able to increase wellness? Definitely. There's probably three. There's so many tips I could give. And I will start with physical health because mm. and I, I have coached, not currently, but over the years, a lot of senior high school students one-on-one. Uh, and the first thing I would ask them is to look at their exercise regime. Now, that my exercise regime may be very different from yours, so it doesn't matter what it is. It needs to slot into your timetable. If it's too hard, if you've got to travel too far, put on gym gear. Or I know for me, for many years, I have my you know running gear. I just leave the house, so it didn't cost anything. I'd go for thirty minutes, and it managed my anxiety for mm. study. Um, so definitely, you need at least three days a week, forty minutes 
to get the adrenaline. So it's the adrenaline that causes the anxiety, the symptoms of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's that fight or flight response. So you, you know, and basically if you don't get your calming response down, fight or flight's meant to idle. It's meant to idle like a car down here. Mm -hmm. But for many people, young people included, it's up here. So it's like one word somebody says or, (laughs) you know, one email or one message and people just fly off the handle so we the exercise will help bring your fight or flight down so too will some form of meditation yeah um and there are various forms of meditation available uh mindfulness is one of the most common at the moment and we're very lucky here in australia to have an organization like smiling mind yeah who Mm. does a lot of work it's free again um there's a lot of great apps so i definitely think about bookending your days even five minutes at the morning, five minutes at night doing a mindfulness practice has been shown to have significant impact on, on well-being. And the final one is, which you can't argue with the research on, is the cultivation of gratitude. Yeah. So it, particularly if you're someone that has you know a tendency to focus on all the things that you haven't got or you do make comparisons and think, oh, I wish I had what they had. Mm. You know, If you can start to... And the research says it doesn't even have to be every day. Once a week... It's just a conscious stopping and thinking about what are five things that are going well or things that I do appreciate. Like it might Mm. be one person I can ring if I really need to. You know, it might be sitting out the back in the sun, playing my music again or something like that. So um, the gratitude for people that aren't experiencing high levels of gratitude, because if you're a grateful person the research says you won't actually get an extra boost so there's actually no point doing anything extra if you're already a grateful person but if you feel like you have been taking friends or family for granted or i mean just take a look at where we live in australia and then Mm. look to the rest of the world we have so much to be grateful in the i know people have their struggles i don't want to minimize people's struggles but we're not in a war-torn country and we generally have running water and food generally um so if you can start to focus on the things you do have and the things that are going well it helps overcome what we know is called the negativity bias which is a natural tendency for us to focus on the negative so it'll it'll counteract that negativity bias because i spent a lot of time on my phone with work like yourself i've made a folder i made a specific folder with my wife so uh, my wife and I have been married since um, oh, we're high school sweethearts. So first kiss, first heart, first boyfriend, <laughs> last boyfriend. So I've got like a, a folder of Courtney from when she was a kid all the way through to when with our first baby. And um, whenever we have a quarrel or um, I miss them or you know when I'm just on my phone, that always just brings me back to so wanted to bring it out. And I've encouraged a lot of students to do that, to make folders of their family and of their values and that's it really right. gives a visual trigger. It's there. very powerful and it's actually, it does fit into this concept of savouring. So there's actually scientific research on our capacity to attend to things, to notice things and to have a sense of appreciation for things. You can do that through visual imagery, you can do it through music, you know, any of the senses. Um, but it's called positive reminiscing is the technical mm. term where we actually, rather than ruminating and thinking back to all the bad things, we actually reminisce. And, and having something like that to prompt you can be really powerful. That's awesome. Dr. Susie Green, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Make sure you sure. check um, Dr. Susie Green's um, Positive Institute, the Positive Institute. The Positivity Institute. The Positivity Institute. <laughs> and check out um, Dr. Susie Green's Instagram, which will be in the link below. 
Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Coda Kings podcast. We really want to encourage you to share this online and personally to any friends, family members, and students that you feel would benefit from it. If you go to our website, greenroom.net.au, and click on the Live tab, you'll see Code of Kings podcast. We want to hear your questions, suggest some topics for us to discuss, and give us your feedback about how it's helped you and your friends. Follow us on Instagram, at the Code of Kings, and hashtag us in your ventures of bravery, moments of discovery, and you'll see us posting helpful things up on there. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We'll see you next time.